So, hey there, Jessica. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much. So if you could take a, a minute to sort of introduce yourself and ground yourself for our listeners, that'd be awesome. No problem. Um, yeah, so my name is Jessica Brody. I'm the author of more than 20 novels for teens, tweens, and adults, um, including uh, the Unremembered Trilogy, uh, 52 Reasons to Hate My Father, I Speak Boy, and the System Divine Trilogy. Um, I'm also the author of uh, Save the Cat Writes a Novel, which is a how-to write a novel book for other uh, novelists. And that's probably... That's probably it <laughs> about what you need to know. <laughs> well, I know. Isn't that funny? It's like, oh, 30 seconds to explain a human <laughs> life. I know, I know. Well, so, okay, but Save the Cat. Now, now that one, so that sort of stands out. It seems like most of your other work is fiction. That's true. That uh, Save the Cat writes a novel is my only nonfiction, and the rest of my stuff is fiction. I've been writing fiction professionally for, oh, gosh, now since 2006. 2007, maybe? No, my first book came out in 2008. Yeah. Um, so for a while now, and uh, I've actually been following this Save the Cat plotting method from the beginning of my career. So it was sort of a natural segue for me to then write about that same plotting method. Um, in case anyone doesn't know, the Save the Cat method is actually originally a screenwriting method. And uh, Blake Snyder was the, the author of the original book. And then I've adapted it for writing novels. Right, right. You know, that's actually something I've been curious about. So I discovered Save the Cat. Oh, I think it was right about the same time that I started to get into Twitter, which um, mm -hmm. I got into Twitter like six years ago for like a three month, you know, dive in the pool, crawl my way back out and never touch it again. And then <laughs> and then I was, you know, down in California because my, um, my uncle had a mild stroke and I was down for a few months helping out. And I was in this house in the middle of the desert with no internet, no no distractions. And I'm like, yes, I can dive into my book again. And I thought, well, I should go check out that writing community I always hear about over in Twitter land. And mm -hmm. sure enough, I get in there and there were like all these people that were sort of mentioning books that had helped them and Save the Cat, Save the Cat, Save the Cat, Save the Cat kept coming up. I thought, well, I need to check out this book. So there I am walking, you know, three to five miles a day in the desert with my beloved Bose headset and my nifty little phone, which could pick up the internet because it had cell. And I listened to your book on Audible like three times in a row. Oh, wow. And then I would go back to the sections that were most relevant to what I was working on and listen to them again. And it just, you have no idea. I had little... um. Uh, three by five cards all over the sliding glass door. And they were all the plot points from Save the Cat. I mean, you know, so like, wow, you're amazing. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, you know, I have the same thing with all the index cards. I actually, when I'm done with a book, I, I kind of quote archive my cards and I like stack them up and put them in rubber bands. It's sort of a ceremonial, like finished with this project. <laughs> and I store them in like a, you know, cabinet. And I have these, this box of all these, all my books are in these like little stacks of cards. So it's sort of a fun thing to go back and look through the cards. Oh my gosh. No, I totally agree. Wow. That's awesome. I think I still have my cards. You're right. Cause I had to take them off the sliding glass door when I came back home again. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so I think I have them too somewhere in this. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's actually dive into that just a little bit more. So everyone who's listening right now, we're going to be covering a bunch of different things. And um, let's see if you are, 
a writer or interested in being a writer. We'll talk about some stuff right now with Save the Cat that's really relevant and interesting to that mindset. Um, but I'm also super looking forward to talking about I Speak Boy, which is essentially a modern adaptation of Emma, isn't it? It is. Yeah, good. Good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, it is. It's a re, It's a modern reimagining of Emma told in a middle school setting. Which, yeah, exactly. And I'm actually enjoying it. And I'll, I've got some stuff to say about Emma a little bit later. So first, back to okay. Save the Cat really fast. Save the Cat. Okay. I'm really curious from the sort of background business side perspective of a writer. My first thought was, what conversation did you have with the original author of Save the Cat, which was for screenwriters, when you approached him and said, I want to do this sort of adaptation and I want to even borrow part of the name? Like, how did all that go down? Yeah, well, actually, I didn't end up ever having that conversation with Blake. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2009. <gasps> and oh. um, yeah, it, it was... Yeah, it was sort of a real blow to the the whole writing community because so many people looked up to him and he was just so open and welcoming and giving with his time and his creative energy. Um, anyone who's met him told you that. And um, so I actually did get to meet him once at a, at a conference, like back when I was, you know, just starting to use the method and just super fangirling. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so the way it kind of came about is I um, I started to post blog posts about of my novel beat sheets because um, so you know for those of you who don't know Save the Cat is basically breaks down all stories into fifteen beats or plot points that uh, make up a solid structure and you can find these beats in books as old as you know Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and as modern as you know, anything you see on the shelf today. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's just the, the, the quick elevator pitch of what Save the Cat is. And so I've been using it to um, outline my novels. I had a novel that I tried to sell way back in the day that just got rejected all over town. Like I have the the file folder full of all my rejection letters, Aww. you know. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, it wasn't, you know, I figured out really quickly. I just didn't know how to tell a story. I didn't know what structure was. I didn't know what I was doing. And I found this screenwriting book, and it just changed everything. And I realized all the things I was doing wrong, it gave me a solid blueprint to follow. I'm a very, like, love blueprints, love step-by-step -step instructions. Um, so it was it was really nice to just, like, for someone to explain the story to me in a way that made sense. And I rewrote the book I was working on using the 15 Beats. I ended up getting an agent for that book, and the agent sold the book to St. Martin's Press in 15 days or, no, 10 days. And it was like this whirlwind from there. And I just went, oh, okay, so this sort of works, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been writing my novels with this method ever since. And I've since sold over 20 novels to major publishers like Simon & Schuster, Random House, um, and Macmillan. Um, and so I started to blog about it. I was like, okay, you guys, you know, I don't know if anybody else has heard about this, but this screenwriting book does work for novels. And I was posting my beat sheets. And the uh, team at Save the Cat, who uh, keeps Blake's uh, legacy alive, they actually reached out to me and said, "Can you? Would you? Want, do you want to blog for us?" And that was, like, you know, another fangirly moment. And I just freaked out and said, "Yes, <laughs> of course." So I, I started posting, you know, the blogs for them, and then that led to me teaching the method to novelists. I started doing like a weekend workshop where I would eight novelists would come in the room with a with an idea and they would leave at the end of the weekend with a full outline or beat sheet ready to go. And it was a super fun class. And, oh, um, yeah, it sounds great. So I started, 
Yeah, I did that for many years, and it just taught me so much about the method, about how to apply it to novelists, about how to teach it in a way that people, especially novelists, really grasped, because we are, even though we have sort of the same bones as screenwriters and novelists, both have to have sort of a, a, a solid story structure, so we come from that same idea, we definitely, I think, look at story in different ways. So the workshop really gave me that uh, really great foundation for eventually writing this book. And it came about, I remember I was having breakfast with the Save the Cat team. And I, I don't know who brought it up first, but someone said, well, there has to be a book, right? And, you know, we all just were like, yeah, that sounds like <laughs> the obvious next step. And um, so I, you know, we, that was it. And I wrote Save the Cat Writes a Novel and, uh, and 10 Feet Press published it um, in 2018. So it was just sort of a really nice, slow progression of, of becoming a, a master cat, as they're called over in Save the Cat world, um, <laughs> teach, teaching the method and then writing this book, which is very much based on how I would teach it in the workshops. Oh, my. I'm so glad I asked that question. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's so that's now see. OK, that is exactly the whole point about the writing community It is just yeah. such a positive community. It really is. It really is. And the, the workshops that we would do were so inspiring because these eight people who didn't know each other were writing completely different stories. Like we would get middle grade authors, we'd get like hardcore science-based sci-fi authors who had like pages and pages of technical notes. And then we'd have like, you know, fantasy authors. We'd have all these different authors and they'd come in this room and they'd pitch their stories. And over the course of the weekend, we would all know each other's stories and we would all know each other's characters. And you know, by the second day, people were like, well, what if Anne would do this? You know, and everyone knew who Anne was and what her flaws were. And it was mm -hmm. just so fun to get those writers together. Oh, wow. You know, it, it, okay, so remember I mentioned I'd gotten into Twitter for a few months and then I jumped back out yeah. again. Um, I had like 250 people who were like following me and I was following them and stuff like that. In just a few months, you know, it happens pretty quick on Twitter, depending on how, what you're doing. But um, the, this is the crazy thing. It was January 3rd of 2021 that uh -huh. I decided, oh, I'm going to get back into Twitter. We all know what happened three days later. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, here I was like, I'm alone. At this point, my aunt and uncle had actually gone to travel for the holidays. And I'm just home on the surrounded by, they have like 100 acres. The neighbors got 250 acres. I mean, it's a you know half mile to the nearest house. It's just me and the dogs in the middle of this beautiful desert. And so suddenly I go from this real isolation and peacefulness to observing January 6, 2021 on Twitter of all mediums. And after about five days of just, I like all my writing stopped. You know how that happens every once in a while. Something chaotic happens and you just can't. Mm -hmm. And I was, and I'm not the type of person to be obsessing about social media. I am 48 years old. It's barely something I'm capable of, much less that I'm like addicted to. But after five days, I was like, oh my gosh, this, I need to step away. And so I, I was looking at Twitter and thinking, I think this might be a scary medium. This is a, a platform that's really intense because so many of the people were talking about that event. And, but there were a couple of tweets coming through from writers that were like about really cool positive stuff. And I thought, you know, I get to curate this myself. This is my decision yeah. who comes in and what I put out. And I'm just going to go through. And I spent two days because I thought I'm going to do this right. I looked at 
the homepage, basically the content of every single person who I followed. And if they were majority politics, I stopped following yeah. them. I uh -huh. lost like 75% of my people or something. And granted, it was a hot spot moment. But still, what happened after that was that all I had was people who were just interested in the writing community. And suddenly my Twitter blossomed into the source of absolute daily positivity and amazingness. That's great. And I was like, so now I'm a very happy little Twitter person. I go into my little writing world. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> So if you're a writer I mean, I mean, out there, check out the writing community in Twitter. It's so awesome. Yeah, and we have to do those things. You know, as writers, as creatives, as humans, we have to set boundaries for ourselves. There is mm -hmm. so many, There, it is way too easy to get sucked in, to get distracted, to and, and we have to protect our mental health. You know, when you are dealing with that much coming at you at once, it's really overwhelming, and I... You know, I have my own opinions on social media in general, but I don't mm -hmm. think we are fragile psyches. We're built for Twitter. <laughs> um, like, I don't think that we're meant to have that many th voices coming at us at once. It'd be like constantly being in a room with shouting people and that just would take a toll. So, you, mm -hmm. you know, what you did was like really, I think, really smart and responsible. Yeah, it, it worked out really well. It was just this moment of empowerment. I guess that's what I wanted to throw out there for yeah. people who are just dipping their toes into the world of writing or maybe some, I mean, because sometimes writers feel isolated or you hear about, oh, I wish I had a really nice writing group and I've tried a few yeah. and it hasn't worked or the pandemic, people are sitting at home, they don't feel like they can go out. And so it, if you curate carefully and you take that empowerment piece, I think you can create this really beautiful positive space for yourself um, with okay. some intention. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. All right. So, wow. Okay, your Save the Cat story is awesome. And people, seriously, <laughs> no joke, check this book out if you um, have any interest in um, writing stories that other people are going to want to read. This is definitely like this, this, you and Jack Bickham. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's phenomenal. I don't. Oh, I don't. Now okay. I have to look him up. <laughs> you do. You do. You do. Um, Jack Bickham, the first book I read, I can't, I don't have the title absolutely memorized, but it's along the lines of the 38 most common writing mistakes that a writer oh. can make or something like that, 38. If you look it up and, and he, oh, it's so sad. I'd written a whole page letter, like longhand, this beautiful letter of appreciation to him. So much gratitude for him writing this book and then I went to look up his address and found out he had died like two years earlier oh right we lose these sad. people it's awful but yeah. um Bickham is spelled b-i-c-k-h-a-m I believe Jack Bickham all right him and you top of my pile of of um writing yeah. books that are awesome so let's move on though because I think we should dive over into for a minute I speak boy and then we'll bounce back over to your trilogy um, because I speak boy full disclosure I've never read Emma and I've actually <laughs> avoided every single movie adaptation ever made about that book and I like I've watched Pride and Prejudice 9,000 times I've watched Persuasion <laughs> I've watched what's the other one Sense and Sensibilities those three are like my go-to box of tissue book uh, movies yeah right I adore them but Emma I have this massive cringe reaction to 
anyone who's in a position of embarrassment. It, oh, it just okay. is something where I feel, I just want to dive in and save them. I feel so empathetic. And so <laughs> Emma, I've, I could be wrong because I've never read it, but Emma has always terrified me that it's going to be all of these horrible, cringeworthy moments in a row. So It's not really. I mean, there are a few. I'm trying to think now. I'm like, uh, you know, I've read, I've read the original a few times and I've seen every adaptation. I, I don't think it's as cringeworthy as you think. Have you seen Clueless? The, the movie Clueless. Um, that's the, the YA, like, teenage thing with three girls? Yeah, and it, it was, uh, yeah, it was three girls. It was, like, a 90s movie, and it was actually an adaptation of Emma. I think uh, I've, modern heard, adaptation I've of Emma. heard of it. I'm thinking Mean Girls is the one I think actually came to mind. I don't think I've seen Clueless. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Clueless is definitely worth watching, um, but it, particularly after you're familiar with Emma, just because they do such a fabulous job with it. Okay. But um, no, I don't think it's super cringeworthy any more so than her other works. Like she always has sort of a moment of somebody's wrong or someone, um, you know, puts their foot in their mouth or someone makes right. a mistake. And Emma is definitely one of those characters who is constantly wrong about things, but it's just <laughs> told in such a, such a brilliantly plotted way. Like the way she's woven the web of Emma and all of the storylines and how they're all put together and how the secrets are all come out. Like it's so, uh... so fabulous. And it's funny because when I wrote, I think boy, um, you know, I based it on, I didn't originally intend to base it on Emma. I wanted to write a book about a girl who finds a magic app on her phone that can translate boys thoughts. So it's right. like, Google, it's like Google Translate, except whatever boys are saying, it translates them into what they really mean or what they're thinking. Right. And I thought that's just like such a fun sort of um, aspirational wish fulfillment type of story for a middle grader. And yeah. um, I, I started writing it and it was sort of, as I was writing it, I was realizing, wow, she's using, like, she's really loves to make matches with her friend. She wants to set up her friend with someone. And there was just so much that was feeling familiar. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this feels like something I've read before. <laughs> and I realized it was Emma. And I was like, I'm retelling Emma without realizing I'm retelling Emma. So I, I reached out to my editor. She'd already bought the, the book on a, based on my pitch. And um, I reached out and I said, do you mind if I just lean into this and, and, and retell Emma? And she's like, that'd be great. Like, I've never read it, but go ahead. I think that sounds really fun. <laughs> so when she read the first draft, she kept like writing little LOLs and like, I loved how you did this plot point. And I was like, yeah, that's from Emma. <laughs> oh. And so it was just really, it was really funny. Like everything she pointed out that she really loved about the story and the, uh, you know, uh, hopefully there was other things too, but right, right. just the way that the, pl- the plots are threaded together and the secrets that come out. And she was like, I love this twist. And I was like, that twist is from Emma. <laughs> so um, and she hadn't really read Emma it. like I hadn't. So apparently she, I imagine yeah. she probably went out and actually read Emma later. She might have, might have, she might might have, have. but I definitely agree. I definitely recommend it, especially if you like Pride and Prejudice, because it's got a similar sense of humor. Okay, okay. So I just when I when I saw that this was you know a retelling, I remember I was like, oh, oh, you know, and I was like, but I'm gonna read it anyways. And then I started to get into it. And to be honest, you know, um, so it's middle grade, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. This is so fun. I have read a graphic novel this year and I don't read graphic novels, but that was mm-hmm. for the show. And now I'm reading a middle grade book, which except for Suzanne Collins's Siri Gregor, the Overlander, I think it is. Except for that. I can't remember. I haven't read 
very much middle grade. I am 48 years old. So, you know, and there, unless I was reading with my kids, it wasn't a personal thing. But I am really enjoying your characters. They're, um, oh, thanks. They are actually like, they're hilarious. <laughs> Maybe it's supposed Thank to be you. funny. <laughs> It is. It's a, it's a comedy. <laughs> okay, okay. So so I Speak Boy. Wow. Now talk about bringing a relevant topic into your book as well with this whole app world that kids are growing up with. Um, what are your thoughts about the effect of smartphones and apps on children? Yeah, and that's definitely something I try to deal with in the book, um, you know, without it being... I try not to kind of hit my readers over the head with what I'm trying to say. I try to, you know, like weave it into the story in an organic way. Um, But one thing that is in that book, which is not just a message for middle graders, it's a message for all of us. And it's just about balance. And, you know, it's exactly what we were talking about with Twitter. Um, Mm -hmm. It's easy to just lose yourself in tech and, and miss everything that's happening around you. And, um, you know, I just, I, I was, I remember we were on vacation and we were like in this paradise on a beach and you know, there's this beautiful sparkling ocean and it's, it's just like this perfect thing. And I look around and like everyone around me was on their phone. Oh my gosh, and I was like, right? what? I was like, yes. where, where else do you want to be right now? <laughs> cause, cause this is like, for me, this is the, this is it. This is where I want to be. And so yeah. it was sort of this eye opening moment where I was like, there's so many people have escaped into their phones that they're missing some of the best things that are happening. Um, So one of the things I talk about in the book is just balance and how she does, the character is sort of an app obsessed uh, middle grader and she has an app for everything and she's very, she loves her apps and obviously when she finds this magic app that can read voice thoughts, she becomes completely dependent on it uh, until she realizes, one, the damage that it does and two, the fact that it can't do what she really needs it to do, which is to mend her friendship with her best friend. So she mm-hmm. loses her best friend over, over her obsession and she can't, there's no app to fix that. So it's sort of mm-hmm. the, if I were going to sum up the, the book, it would be, there's no app that will, you know, that will fix your friendship. Technology is great. It can really help, but we have to, we have to set limits on ourselves. Well, and it's interesting. I, one, I completely agree. And what's interesting about that is that there, there's also those apps that I tilt my head and I go, well, I guess that is super, super useful for someone who doesn't have a brain because <laughs> there are, the, there's such an, what did I, five billion apps have probably been created by now. I don't know, but it's some absurd number because there's this idea that if you just create an app, people are automatically going to assume it has value and they'll just grab it, especially if it's free. And and so often, you know, I'll, I'll look at some sort of an app, not that I'm looking on that often, but the rare times that I do, I just scratch my head and I'm like, well, but I, but, but my brain does that already, you know? <laughs> and so I feel like there's this, um, and that's a whole nother layer. That's not just about balance. That's about just the, the recognition that maybe someone's what, how often over the past century has someone been trying to sell you something you really don't need, but their yeah, job is to convince yeah. you you need it. And then if you buy into that and believe you need it, now you no longer realize you totally could have done it on your own without a second thought. Yeah. There's that, there's, there was that great documentary on Netflix. It was called Social. <gasps> uh, is that what the name but was? But anyway, 
Well, I'm going to look it up. Was that the name? No, I'm going to look it up. You keep talking. They had this great line in there that stuck with me, and it was, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. And I just, that was eye-opening to me. And you think about all these, like you said, free apps. Like, they're not free. They are stealing something else or they're, you're paying it for it with something else. It's usually your attention and your, and your, um, focus. It's called and the so social when, dilemma. The social dilemma. Thank you. Yes. Um, and it's the same, you know, whether it's the social networks or it's through the apps or, um, but it's, you know, whenever someone offers you something for free, it's never free. Right. So that's always something to keep in mind. Like, what are they wanting? I, I try to think of that way. What do they want from me in exchange for this quote free thing? If it's not yeah. cash. How else are you paying for it? Right. Yeah. And most of the time it's that they want our attention because attention equals ad dollars. It equals, mm-hmm. you know, time spent in the app. You know, that's something just the way to balance is just to kind of ask yourself, like, what am I giving for this free thing? Yeah. The social dilemma was incredibly well done. Was I was so amazed yeah. by the, the caliber of the, it's a documentary and you just have all these people who were deeply involved in actually sort of the creation of this giant monster that they now are scared of themselves. I mean, some of them are like, you know, they're like, yeah, sure. I made my millions in this career, you know, but my children are absolutely forbidden from having a smartphone until they're 16, you know, and there's no social media yeah. on the on the computer in the house. And, and, you know, well, these people probably know what they're talking about if they're that vigilant on protecting their yeah. children they're protecting them from something that's worth protecting them from. And um, it's I, very much a modern day Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. the, if you read Frankenstein, the classic, like that is what social media is. It's someone created a monster. Mm-hmm. And now the monster is out on the loose. It's wrecking havoc. And we're all going, uh, whoops. <laughs> and we what do we do? It. Yeah. If you're the standalone parent who sees what's going on and you're, you're trying to block that, it's, extremely hard to do so because the children look around at their peers and they're like, but all of my peers are doing this. And you literally have to go hide in a cabin in Montana if you want your kids to, (laughs) you know, it's bad enough what's happening to adults. If the adults can't protect themselves from being taken advantage of, how are we going to protect our children? And they're more vulnerable. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing up that movie. Really, really. (laughs) Yeah. A little off topic, but, you know. Well, you know, not really off topic, but that's the whole beauty of fiction is that fiction matters as you speak to so brilliantly in Save the Cat um, because you have meaningful themes, you have stakes that matter, um, characters and issues we can empathize with. So I was hoping that we could dive back into Save the Cat just a tad. For people who haven't seen it yet and I hope they will see it if they have any interest in writing an amazing story. Um, could you touch a little bit about those, those aspects of story writing that cause us as readers to become so enthralled in a story? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I actually start the book with. It's, uh, it's a chapter called Why Do We Care? Uh, creating the story-worthy hero. And it's I, I feel strongly about starting there in when I teach the method because or when I teach storytelling. Because if you don't have a character who we care about or who we want to know about or who we want to root for, or even if we don't like them, we want to find out what happens to them. If we don't have that, char- that, that story-worthy hero that I call them, mm-hmm. uh, people are not going to follow the story. Because characters are the guides of your story's world. You know, it's who we latch on to and that and that doesn't have to be a human it could be a it could be a robot it could be a 
uh, a pet uh, animal. But right. So one of the things that I that I break down in that chapter, which is right off the bat, is you need three things. You need a hero who is who has a problem, and that's usually some sort of in, interior psyche problem, like that I call a flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, that something kind of I would say faulty in their wiring. So they're you know things that can be fixed. Um, so these are like attachment issues. Um, these are things like you know trust issues. Um, unable to forgive someone for a past mistake, vengefulness, like any sort of flaw that is causing exterior, interior flaw that is causing exterior problems in their life. Um, The second thing that every character, good, you know, story-worthy character needs is they need a goal. They need to be pursuing something on page one. Like before the story even starts, what does this person want? And because it's important to remember that stories don't start on page one. They, that's when the reader is introduced to the person. But this person presumably has been alive for a lot longer than that. Right. So they're, what's been going on in their life and what are they actively pursuing? Um, and then the third thing is that they, they have to have what, what I call a need. And the need is that sort of what's going to really fix their life. Like what's going to solve that, that bigger problem or or it perfects that flaw. Um, what do they really need to get out of this story? Because most, and that's really the, the heart of where your, your storytelling is. It's what are you trying to say? You know, in, in I speak boy, as we were talking about, this character learns to balance between technology and, and reality. They learn that, you know, an app's not going to do the most important things. They have to do that on their own, which is, you know, mend their friendships. So mm-hmm. those are those are things those are needs. Well, um, let's con- so start- wait, wait. Let's contrast yeah. for people who haven't read it. Let's contrast that that lesson that she learns with. I think it's very early on that her, you know, her friend, you know, guesses or already knows what her, you know, greatest dream or desire is in life, which is to write the app that's downloaded, you know, a billion times on day one or something like that. I mean, so she's like yeah. obsessively app oriented, which yeah. that extreme difference between her obsession, and then later realizing she has to let it go. Like, that's sort of what causes it to be such an obvious or such a clear learning movement forward for her. Would you agree? Yeah. Essentially, yeah, exactly. And what we do when we set up these, like, problems, the way that they all fit together, the problem or the flaw, the goal, and the need, is that you start with a character who has a problem that needs to be fixed. You have a goal is essentially what they're trying, what they think is going to improve their life. So it's like, what are they pursuing that they think is going to solve whatever they're dealing with? I so, want more money. You know, in, <laughs> yeah, I want more money. I want a house. I want to own a bookstore. I want to, um, you know, it's usually external things. Like I want to, you know, travel the world. I want to win the big game. I want to, um, you know, spread my father's ashes off the coast of Ireland, whatever it is. There's mm-hmm. like some external thing that they're pursuing that they think is going to better their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's never it's never that that's going to better their lives. It's always that internal need that we mentioned. So that's kind of how they all fit together. And when you look at the, the problem that they start with and the need that eventually fixes that problem, that's what creates a character arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, I loved how you dealt with plotters and pantsers concept. I mean, you know, Save the Cat Writes the Novel was so much more than just, hi, here's, you know, the plot points you need. There you go. Write a book. I mean, it's like you just, <laughs> and, and anyways, I okay, I'll stop raving endlessly about it. Um, if people want to learn more about your work, 
of which we're going to talk also in a second about the Writing Mastery Academy. Yay! Um, they can go initially to Jessica Brody, which is B-R-O-D-Y dot com, and find it all there. Is that true? That's absolutely true. That's sort of the hub of, um, you can find my novels, you can find Save the Cat, you can find my online courses. As you mentioned, it's I, I run an online writing school called the Writing Mastery Academy, and it's a all-you-can-consume um, subscription service. So you pay one uh, very pretty fair, pretty low monthly fee, and you get access to all my online courses. So they are all um, on-demand and uh, self-paced. Yes, and, and it uh, is very reasonable. You're correct. It is definitely entry-level people who are nervous about how much money they can throw at their new dream career. This is totally doable for them. There's also um, an, on, an official Save the Cat writes a novel course in there. So it works in conjunction with the book, or you can also use it in place of the book. Um, a lot of people choose to, do, to use both, um, but it's, you know, it's sort of a workshop version of the book. Right, and I have to put out there that you, you did the, um, you, uh, the Audible version. That's you speaking, correct? Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I read it. It's my very first audiobook that I ever read. I had so much fun because I'm a huge audiobook fan. Um, <laughs> I listen to like three audiobooks a week. And so when I got to actually go into an official audiobook studio and like read my own book, that was just, I mean, honestly, it was like one of the most memorable moments of my career. Oh, it was like Christmas. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. I didn't want it to be over. I was like, really? There's not more we can read? Well, <laughs> I'll I come mean, back. yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think because it was nonfiction and so, and you'd been teaching all these classes already. I mean, you know, you were just so excellent at it. And I could imagine, I personally like reading out loud to my kids, but I would be intimidated about the idea of trying to do for a fiction book because those people, they're like real character actors. They're voice actors. I mean, they bring so much to it that is, wow, I don't have those skills. But, I, I don't have those skills either. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I would never do my own fiction. No, but your nonfiction was awesome, especially because you've been saying all this for years in your classes. So, um, yeah, I I agree. For me, I have this new almost tagline that's been running through my head, which is when your hands are busy and your mind is free, that is the perfect time to go listen to, you know, one of my radio interviews with a great mm. author, because that's what I do. I listen when I'm walking, when I'm gardening, when I'm cooking. I don't actually have much time in my life to sit down for the eight hours necessary in a chair to read a book and have my hands holding the pages. But if my hands are doing something that I need to do, cleaning a chicken coop, whatever it is, and I'm listening to that story, I'm like, yay. Um, Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Let's, you've got your website where they're going to be able to find out about other books you've written. Let's talk a little bit about your trilogy, the System Divine oh, yeah. Trilogy, because you have a new, the last book is coming out. Is that true? Yes, it's finally finished. <laughs> it's been a long process. When did you start it? Um, so this is my, there's a lot of, there's a lot of firsts with this trilogy. I, I'd written an, another sci-fi trilogy in the past called the Unremembered Trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. That one takes place in our world. It's very much based on kind of things that exist in our technological state right now or what futurists are predicting will exist in the near future. Um, 
the System Divine Trilogy is completely different. So it's my first off-world book. So it takes place on a, an entirely different solar system, an entirely different um, planet after Earth is gone. And um, it is a sci-fi reimagining of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. So we, we, and it is my, so it's my first, it was actually my first retelling before I did the Emma one. Mm-hmm. So it was my first retelling, my first off-planet, like, space opera, and then also my first co-written project. So I, I co-wrote it with a friend of mine, um, a really good writer friend named Joanne Rendell, and we actually had taught a class together before this, and we decided that we worked really well together. So we wrote this book together, and we started, I think, gosh, it was back in 2017, I think, when we sold the book, the trilogy, to Simon & Schuster and uh, started working on it. And it is now the third book called Suns Will Rise. Mm-hmm. Um, is coming out August 3rd, 2021. So Beautiful cover art, by the way. Oh, isn't it the best? It's, yeah. The artist is... Um, his his name's uh, Bill Ellis, and and that's actually one word, Bill Ellis. Oh, and cool! He does so many great fantasy and sci-fi uh, covers. Like any, t- I can sort I sort of know his look now after I've worked with him on three covers. But mm-hmm. I will see something in the bookstore. I'll be like, that has to be Bill Ellis, and I will open up the flap and look in the copyright, and I'm like, yep, that's him. So he does some amazing uh, work, and we were so excited when. Simon told us that they were hiring him to do the series, and he's just done a fabulous job. Yay! Oh, another aspect of the journey of being a published writer. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're, you know, self-published authors, they have that gift of being able to have total say in their own covers, you know, Mm -hmm. which is a blessing and a curse. You know, they have to find the designer, they have to, or design it themselves, and, you know, it's all on them. But then they have all that freedom to say, no, I don't like that. I want to do it again. Um, traditionally published authors, you know, we have the benefit of someone else designing it and, you know, professional designers working on these covers. Um, but we don't always have a say in what goes on the final cover. Sometimes mm-hmm. we don't like a book and we don't like the cover and the publisher says, that's too bad. We're still putting it on. Um, fortunately for this series, it was just from the first time we looked at the cover, we were like, yep. that's amazing let's let's, let's do it so we've been really lucky with this with this trilogy yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit about comps uh it's an interesting um i like how someone recently described that they they liked that it's been shortened to sort of this nickname of comps because it gives the idea of comparable and competitive it brings like two words forward Mm. into the idea yeah um, so Les Miserables and the Lunar Chronicles, which I was mentioning earlier, the author um, of the Lunar Chronicles is actually going to be joining me on the show in a couple months. She's got another book coming out. Um, but so I'm familiar with both of these. And I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with the first, some with the second. How did you and your co-writer choose these two as comps? And what was the purpose of choosing them? Like, what do you... Um, what do the comps do for you when you're trying to express what the story is about to a future reader who doesn't know anything about it? How how did you go about the whole comp thing? Well, the Les Mis one was obvious because it was a retelling. So we knew right, right away that it was going to be sort of a sci-fi Les Mis. And the Lunar Chronicles one, um, you know, kind of came, I remember, I think it was my publisher who first, maybe we pitched it that way, but 
Um, we were, we're sort of said it's in the spirit of the Lunar Chronicles because mm-hmm. what I think Marissa Meyer did, by, she by no means was the first person to do a retelling, mm-hmm. but she sort of launched this huge, um, this, this huge uh, influx of sci-fi retellings and like with space and, you know, for, for teens because hers oh, are really? all fairy tales re- retold. I mean, she wasn't the first person to do it, but it was a very successful series. And, right. and then there was a lot of like something in space after that. And I think she was, her books were originally pitched as, um, I, w- I actually, I actually was with the same publisher as her when those books came out and I toured uh. with her. So I got to, I got to hear her pitch the books a lot over yeah. on, yep. on tour and so she would pitch, you know, it's like Cinderella in space, and its second book is Little Red Riding Hood in space, and the third right. book is Rapunzel in space. And it's just so easy to grasp that, you know? Like, you hear that, and you go, oh, well, I want to read that, <laughs> you know, obviously. Um, so that was just a really successful uh, idea, I think. And mm-hmm. um, like I said, you know, there was other space retellings before that, but it, I think that series really, like, launched uh, a, a big slew of those. Oh, I agree. So, I think, you know, when, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, just imagine, right? I'm thinking for like our readers out there right now. It's like, you know, imagine someone's like, oh, well, let me tell you about this book. There's a girl and there's a guy, blah, 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 blah. you know, pretty soon you're like lost and confused. Or they can say, yeah. well, this is sort of like, you know, it's Cinderella and it's dystopia future and there's a whole big giant space element. Well, the fact mm-hmm. that most of us know what Cinderella storyline is, they basically just poof, you have a really good sense of of what this book is about. And yet nothing's been given away really. Yeah. You know, right. so in, in, in what is that? Like 11 words, you know? So yeah, yeah, I love that. They did a great job. Oh, I'm even more impressed right now as I think about it. <laughs> yes. You know, and I think that's why retellings do are very popular and people enjoy writing them. They enjoy reading them, but they're also very easy to sell because you pick a book that people or, or a story that people already love and adore and you say, I'm going to do it, but in a very, in a, in a different way, you know, mm-hmm. you, you save all those words and all that time, like you said, to have to pitch. And one of the things I talk about in Save the Cat Writes Novel is how to pitch a book and how to pitch your story. And we talk about comps. Um, I talk about log lines. Right. Traditionally a screen, a screenwriting thing, but I've turned it into a novel thing as well. But um, what comps do is it skips all those steps. So it's like a retelling. It's like being able to say it's a retelling of this. You're basically saying it's like this and then maybe with a little bit of this. So like my unremembered trilogy, I always pitched as the Maze Runner meets Orphan Black um, oh. and, or the Born I- Sometimes I would say the Born Identity meets Orphan Black. And yeah, see, people go, oh, like oh. You, if you can, if you can yeah. hit on something someone likes and knows and then you're you're one step closer, maybe several steps closer to drawing them in. And I love so all three of those. Really so do. so now I'm like, oh, OK, I need. That book. Like, can you send me that book too, please? <laughs> that just rose yeah. up my wish list. Do, 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 do. <laughs> wow, the power but of comps right yeah. there. The power of comps, yeah. And you can, you just, it's a fast track to uh, getting a reader interested in your story. So, to be honest, like, I know the Lunar Chronicles um, have, have a sense of that. But when I saw Les Mis, my, <laughs> you know, honestly, I keep looking at it going, it feels like, wow, you know, <laughs> I'm like, that is intense. Like, even to understand the story, much less to understand it well enough to be able to do a retelling of it. Honestly, 
how were you not or were you phenomenally intimidated? I Oh, right. so much. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like half of the battle with us getting over our intimidation of retelling a Victor Hugo classic like Les Mis. Um, I will say combined, the trilogy is more pages than Les Mis. So we're very proud of that um, because <laughs> Les Mis is one of those like Warren Peace is one of those infamously long books. Yes. Um, and we stayed true to that aspect of it. We wrote a lot of book pages. Well, um, I mean, you know, yeah, rewriting it as a trilogy in the modern day makes a lot of sense because back then they would create like those giant tomes of books, you know, they like hold your door open in a windstorm. But um, yeah, nowadays people like a book a little bit thinner and more achievable. So I get why it's a trilogy. Yeah. Just sort of put it all together and poof, there's your giant tome. <laughs> it's very big. Yeah. One of the ways that we got over our intimidation, I think, is we we called it a reimagining and not a retelling um, because we found that gave us a little bit more leeway in order, Mm -hmm. you know, because it is really not a retell. You know, there's, there's definitely elements that we've taken. There's definitely storylines and subplots that we've taken. There's characters that we've taken and updated. Like one of our favorites is um, Inspector Javert is now a cyborg named Inspector Lemire um, who is, you know, kind of programmed to seek the truth. So we we sort of just took his natural, the character's natural inclinations and what he's known and famous for, and we made it, like, super techie and just, like, leaned into it. Um, So this is so much fun, like, doing those kinds of updates. And then there's definitely storylines that play out similar to Les Mis. But one thing that we did have to update is when you think about, like, the story of Les Mis, it is centered around a student rebellion in 1800s that failed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you can't really base like an epic YA space opera trilogy on a failed you know, failed rebellion. Mm -hmm. It has to be bigger than that. And it was a rather small rebellion when you look at the history of French revolutions. Um, So what we did is we took the French revolution, the actual one, and we combined it with the Les Mis story. And so it's a little bit of a French revolution retelling as well, um, which was all very fun to do. Fun. Yes. Hmm. Blood in the streets. Joy, joy. <laughs> I'm thinking oil, <laughs> yeah. android oil flowing down the streets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm totally guessing here. But wow. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. But see, look at that. The, the, the joy and enthusiasm that has to go into trying to turn that type of a story into a why. Yeah. Wow. You have to love your source material, I think to pull off a retelling like you can't you can't say like oh I sort of liked this book I'm going to retell it because you have to live in it for mm-hmm. a long time you know we we read I mean we read the whole book obviously my co-author I think read it three times um, mm-hmm. we read cliff notes of it we watched uh, adaptations of it musicals full movies the miniseries mm-hmm. on BBC um, just just immersed ourselves in this story and every time we would immerse ourselves in a rendition of it we would get new ideas so you really do have to love it i think well wonderful now when does the third book come out what's the launch date august 3rd august so a little 3rd. less than a month now okay <laughs> and when did you start the trilogy like um how many years has it taken you and your co-writer to pull this off I'm pretty sure we sold it in 2017. Um, the first book came out in 19. Um, it was March 19. 
and the second book came out a year later, and the third book we needed some extra time with. Um, it is the longest. And uh, so that one is now coming out like a year and a half after the second one. That's really close. I'm surprised. Wow. Because, like, what was the gap between the Harry Potter books or the Twilight books or the Hunger Game books? Did they also come out that close? I, I don't really remember. I don't know if with Harry with Harry Potter, I don't know if it was that close. I Yeah. I mean, to, today, traditionally, publishers like for series books to come out a year apart mm-hmm. um, to sort of keep the momentum yes. of the series alive. But I know that that has been problematic. It has been a problematic schedule for a lot of authors of, mm-hmm. of series, especially these longer, really intricate world-building series where you are creating so much from scratch. And it's just it's really hard for a lot of authors to make that schedule. And we, we mm-hmm. hit that same challenge with the third book. We were just like, after we did it with the second book, which was, so hard because mm-hmm. the second book also a 600 page book and oh. we were just you know like <laughs> working so hard on it just nonstop. and it was a book that had to get rewritten several times it was definitely like the problem child of the trilogy yeah which as middle books middle books often are the problem child um so we just were so tired by the time we turned it in and if we had needed to get the next one we would have literally had to start it almost the moment we turned in the second book and we were like no we need a break (laughs) so we did take a little extra time with that one i mean you know the hunger games series by suzanne collins um i think that came out after twilight so i'm pretty sure twilight came out before hunger games came out later and i felt like i had this feeling that they had pushed her to get that third book out fast and the reason was Mm -hmm. because there was a, a distinct shift between book one and book two which really felt like um um and she was able to lavish enough attention and enough time on all the important things that were happening in each of those books and then and this did not surprise me that the movie franchise decided to turn book three into two movies because i remember mm-hmm. in book three i just kept thinking the publisher should have let her write four books this third mm-hmm. book could be fleshed out and it could be two books you know and then of course when the movie franchise did that i was like i'm i was right i was right <laughs> yeah but, but yeah i've been concerned those... about authors getting squeezed and you see a um in those situations you can see a slide not in the author's ability but just in the what they're allowed and given time to put out there because if you hold them back time-wise they can't give you everything they're capable of yeah, I mean, books are really well-written. Books are not written on the first draft. Like, um, you know, even semi-decent books are not usually written in the first draft. And so, you need lots of time to let this story. You, you just have to live with it. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite books that I've ever written are the ones where I just lived it. Like every day, when I even when I wasn't writing, I was in the world. I was thinking about it. I was puzzling plot pieces together, and it's just that's the best experience. But when you're under the gun. You are, you don't have that time away from the story to marinate like during the rest of the day because you're writing. You have to write so much in one day right. um, that you're just you're not refilling your tank. And I think it's such an important step is to have those like off those, those hours away from the book where you can just think about the book. Well, and and there's just the I mean, how do I say this? Yes, I completely agree. A person can have a very <laughs> professional attitude about their writing. They can do their six to eight hours a day. 
you know, they can plug it out and give you quality. Yes, that's absolutely possible. And sometimes um, for those people out there who maybe have been querying for a couple of years or maybe more, longer, and they've had to go back and sort of break the mold and restructure and they're bemoaning the fact that it's been six years they've been working on a book. But the truth is that after that six years, you've had enough time for ideas to show up in year three, four, and five that wouldn't have shown up if the book was published on year three. And I think sometimes you just end up with more time for more organic ideas to come up. And Mm -hmm. some books benefit from the fact that it took you a while to get there. Yeah, I agree with that. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, we are running out of time. So what I want to ask you about is your, I love it, you're so well organized. (laughs) You have um, a book that is already set. I'm assuming you must have already sold the idea. So that's why you have such a clear idea of when it's going to come out. Save the Cat, specific to YA novels. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to do that, given that, the original Save the Cat Writes a Novel definitely is applicable to YA books. What was the goal? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So Save the Cat young, Writes a Young Adult Novel is supposed to come out in, I think, I think they're saying August of 2022. So I'm working on that book now. Um, yeah, the, the original book absolutely applies to middle grade, young adult, and adult novels. And I break down all three of those genres in my examples. Um, so it's not like it's a necessity it's not a complete necessity to have a young adult edition. Mm-hmm. The reason that my publisher and I decided to write a young adult edition was just to give the young adult audience more examples, more specifics that were geared toward them. Because I think the original book, it, it's great, but there's a lot that won't apply to you. You know, so if you're mm-hmm. like specifically, let's say, if you're specifically writing a, um, there's all these different genres in the book, which we don't, probably don't have time to get into, but there's like a genre in there called the Golden Fleece. And these are stories about quests where uh, a hero goes on some sort of quest searching for one thing and usually finds something else like mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and so in that in that specific chapter, I broke down uh, Ready Player One is a Golden Fleece. But you know what else yeah. is a Golden Fleece is Six of Crows, which is a young adult novel. And so, you know, yeah. I have now the opportunity to take all these genres that where I break down these different stories and focus them entirely on YA, which I just think is going to be for a specifically YA author. It's going to be really helpful to see yeah. how the method applies specifically. And it's going to give me an opportunity as well to, uh, to go into things that I wasn't able, I didn't have the space to go into in the first book, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, with young adult and middle grade, a lot of times we, the catalyst beat, the inciting incident comes earlier than in an adult novel because the pacing needs to be a little faster. And, you know, what kind of stakes are you dealing with in a young adult book that you might not see in a, that you might not see in an adult world? Um, things like that. The series is obviously a huge part of the young adult industry. Like, there are so few standalone books in the young adult world anymore. Oh, yeah, um, there are fair definitely point. great ones. They're great, great standalone novels. I'm not just saying the standalones. I'm just saying that it is a really, really popular thing to do is to write a series. So I'm going to talk more about the series. It's one of the number one questions I get from readers mm-hmm. of Save the Cat Writes a Novel. How does it apply to a series? So I'm going to be able to look at the young adult series specifically, where I think in terms of series, probably young adult is where it's most common to see a series. So there's just a lot of things that I get to explore that I'm really excited about that didn't really fit into the, into the original. 
No. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. I'm. Well, I'm. You know, I will be picking it up next year when it comes <laughs> out. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. Um. So, gosh, I we're in the same state. I was so excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days we should get together. I will drive down. Yeah, we can have absolutely. coffee. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, Jessica, so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, I loved it. It was really fun chatting with you about all things technology and <laughs> and storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, folks, you can learn more about all this amazing stuff at jessicabrody.com. And um, is there any other website that um, that you and your co-writer have? Or is there another website out there floating around? Or is that the main go-to? That's the main go-to. Um, writingmastery.com is uh, right now it directs to uh, to me, but we're going to be actually hopefully spinning that up to be its own site soon. It will be um, a, a, a resource for writers. So you can go to that now and see what's uh, developing there in the future. Right. Writing Mastery Academy. All right. Well, once again, thank you for creating awesome content and sharing your wisdom with all of us because it's really great. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> 